Please take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 51 with me, looking this evening at verses 1 through 29. Jeremiah 51 is a long chapter, and there's much to cover, so we'll be breaking it up into two uh, sermons, each with uh, a manner of focus or a measure of focus on the events of Jeremiah 51 as it relates to Babylon and its day, and of course, looking forward to... Revelation 17 and 18 and the prophecies of Babylon. It was last week that we stepped into Jeremiah 50, and as we did so, uh, we spoke extensively about the links between Jeremiah's prophecies against Babylon and end times prophecies against mystery Babylon. And we noticed some general inconsistencies between the fall of Babylon as it relates to the Medo-Persian Empire and God's promises to the nation in chapter 50, God's promises to Babylon of their destruction. And knowing that the scriptures cannot be broken and recognizing the various hints regarding end times language, we discerned a strong link between the prophetic destruction of Babylon in Jeremiah 50 and 51, as we'll see it tonight, and the destruction of that entity, that mother of harlots, that great whore, the mystery Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18. As I mentioned, Jeremiah 51 is 64 verses long. That's too much ground for us to cover tonight, so we're just going to cover about half of it this evening. And beginning in verses 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 51, the Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon and against them that dwell in the midst of them that rise up against me a destroying wind and will send unto Babylon fanners that shall fan her and shall empty her land, for in the day of trouble they shall be against her round about. God promises here to raise up what he calls a destroying wind against Babylon, and all them that dwell in the midst shall rise up against them. This destroying wind, and then he goes on to speak of the idea of fanners, would be uh, to fan the flames of destruction. So uh, my, it's been cold lately, right? And one of my wife's favorite things when it gets cold is to start a fire in our fireplace. And so we have a fire going in our fireplace. We've had one over the last few days. And in the morning, what my wife will do is at night, uh, she'll bury some of the coals. And then in the morning, there'll still be some coals under the ash. And we'll get them out from under the ash and we'll put some dry wood on top of them. And then I'll begin to blow right? And I'll blow on those coals and you'll see it glow a little bit more as it's getting a little more oxygen. And I am fanning that flame as it were. And then eventually it's going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And then the wood will light. And then uh, we are back in business as far as the fire is concerned. And that's that idea here that God has declared a destruction, something which he often terms as it relates to judgment in the terms of fire. And then, of course, we know as well that Babylon will be burned with fire. And so God said he's going to send fanners to Babylon, a destroying wind. And and these fanners will fan her and thus the fires of God's judgment uh, will will be fanned, will be uh, strengthened in her midst. So we're seeing here this idea of judgment upon judgment. And this is very much so what we've encountered over the last few weeks. In fact, uh, we might see these chapters as somewhat repetitious. The only reason why we're going through them relatively slowly, as opposed to just blasting through it all, is because we need to draw these links, we desire to draw these links, to Revelation 17 and 18. So we continue in verses 3 and 4, and the Bible says this, Against him that bendeth, 
let the archer bend his bow. And against him that lifteth himself up in his brigadine, and spare ye not her young men, destroy ye utterly all her host. Thus the slain shall fall in the land of the Chaldeans, and they that are thrust through in her street. So God calls the archer to bend his bow against those that bend the bow, and against those who lift up themselves up uh, in his brigadine. A brigadine would be his armor to not spare them, but to destroy them utterly. In other words, the one who uh, to this point has been the attacker is now attacked. The one who to this point has been the aggressor will now be judged. Babylon, as Babylon has treated Israel, so now God will treat Babylon. And he says the slain will fall in the streets. Verses five and six. For Israel hath not been forsaken, nor Judah of his God, of the Lord of hosts. Though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel, flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. Once again in chapter 51, we see the foundational reality of these judgments that God has not forgotten Israel, that though Israel has been taken into captivity, that though there are very few left of Judah, we'll see when we get to chapter 52 that since the days of Zedekiah, only 4,600 people have actually, been, have actually gone from Judah to Babylon. In total, in all of the deportations, maybe 5,500, 6,000 Jews made it to Babylon in those deportations, which means all of the rest of them were destroyed by famine, by pestilence, and by the sword. And yet God says, I've not forsaken you. You have not been forsaken of your God, God tells them, the Lord of hosts, even though, God says, your land was filled with sin against me, I've not forgotten you. I've not forsaken you. I love this. I love this. We've seen it so many times in Jeremiah, and it never gets old. You're reading, and it's really depressing, and there's all this judgment, and you're like, ugh. And then you just see this glimmer, right? This verse that says, but I still love you. This verse that says, but I want to give you mercy. This verse that says, I still remember you. God's hand reaching out in mercy. What a God we serve. There's such tremendous love here. Consider the magnitude of this statement from the God of all flesh. You have sinned against the very essence of my righteous character, God says, but I will not forsake my own. The spirit of mercy, the spirit of redemption, the spirit of steadfastness and faithfulness. And this inexpressible love ought to well in God's people a desire to get on his side. And that's what we see in verse 6. So God says, after he makes this expression of love, he says, flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. He calls for the nation to separate itself. Now it's here that we see again an inconsistency with what we would understand of the captivity of Judah and of the call that's being made here 
to Babylon, or to, to Judah in Babylon. First, we find here that God speaks as he does many times, both to Israel and Judah. Now, Israel was not taken into captivity in Babylon. Only Judah was, right? So when God says to Israel and to Judah, I've not forsaken you, flee out of the midst of Babylon, it should uh, cause us to say, why? We've seen all throughout the book this distinguishing between Israel and Judah. And we've seen God say, I will bring Israel and Judah back together. And when we see that here, that should make us think prophetic and times. The idea of there's a time where they were gathered. Second, we find that both Israel and Judah are called to come out from the midst of Babylon, though, again, only Judah is taken captive by them. And God already told them that they'd be there 70 years. So why would God call them to flee out of that which he sent them and he told them that they'd be there for 70 years, right? So we know that there's something deeper going on here than just flee from the city of Babylon. Flee, you, they're, they're captives in Babylon. They're, that's where God placed them. There's something deeper. And of course, we know that this deeper, as we've discussed last week, as we will discuss this week and the week after and the week after that, this deeper essence here of this call is to flee from the taint of the world to flee from the world system that Babylon represents. And he says to do so because vengeance is at hand. And God forbid that his people would be caught up in his vengeance against the city. Verses 7 and 8. God says, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken and the nations have drunken of her wine. Therefore, the nations are mad. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her. Take balm for her pain. If so be, she may be healed. So God says that Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made the earth drunken and mad, that the earth has bought into the philosophy and the ideology of Babylon and that as they have drunk from the cup, that, that cup, they have gone mad. They are made drunken with the philosophy of Babylon. And God, of course, then shows this sudden destruction that she will suddenly be destroyed and that the world will marvel and the world will howl, will cry for her. And it's here that we begin to see the strong correlations as we drew them last week, so too this week, between Jeremiah 51 and the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is a good place before we do that to remind ourselves of the nature of dual fulfillment in prophecy. As we talked about it last week, as we talk about it this week, we see that there is this idea of dual fulfillment. And the concept of dual fulfillment, not uncommon in prophecy, is that we see a circumstance where the prophecy that, that we are reading is actually fulfilled in a manner of speaking twice in history. That there is a near fulfillment and there is a far fulfillment of the same prophecy. And the first generally near fulfillment uh, perhaps per fulfills the prophecy in spirit, but not in fullness. And then the farthest fulfillment is actually the heightened or more full fulfillment of the prophecy at hand. And we've talked about this before. I mentioned it in our Revelation series. The most obvious example of this is the abomination of desolation in Daniel. God speaks of an abomination of desolation in Daniel that would stand in the holy place and that would desecrate the temple. And that objectively happened in history in, in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And during the days of the Maccabees, 
he did that very thing. He uh, went into the temple. He desecrated the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. He erected a statue of Zeus in the holy place. And he sought to fundamentally uh, strip the Jews of all religious distinctives. The Maccabees even called that the abomination of desolation. And the only reason why we know that's not the only fulfillment, though it was a fulfillment, is because Jesus in Matthew 24 says, and when ye see the abomination of desolation in the temple. Speaking future tense, that it's coming one day, right? And so we see this near and far idea and the fact that, it, that the near fulfillment took place as God said it would, though not in full, not in its fullness, assures us that the far one is coming. And that's the idea of dual fulfillment. That's what we're seeing here with Babylon, that there is, and we'll see this in Jeremiah 51, there is any number of these prophecies that will be fulfilled by the Medo-Persian Empire, that will be fulfilled uh, in some 50 years or so after Jeremiah writing these things upon Babylon. But there's many, many things that just don't add up. Many, many things which are not fulfilled until we read Revelation 17 and 18. And in Revelation 17 and 18, we find these fulfillments. And so in verse 7, God speaks of Babylon being a golden cup in the Lord's hand that has made the earth drunken. Look at what we find in Revelation chapter 17, verse 2, and then verse 4. Speaking of Babylon, the Bible says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And then verse 4. And the woman, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness and of her fornication. We see the exact same picture, right? And you see a few ellipses there. I'm sorry, I had to skip a few things for the sake of squeezing it all in there. But the idea that this woman has a golden cup in her hand and with it, the world is drinking of her fornication, of her philosophy, of her ideology. The correlations are very, very close. We see it again in verse 8. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her. Revelation chapter 14, verse 8 says, And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made the nations drink of the wrath, of the wine, excuse me, of the wrath of her fornication. So the cup is in the Lord's hand because the cup is the wrath of God. And that correlates to what we find in verse 7 of Jeremiah 51. And these images and the correlation between them lend us to this idea that what's being prophesied in Jeremiah 51 has a farther fulfillment, a deeper fulfillment in the days that are to come. Verses 9 through 13. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her and let us go every one into his own country, for her judgment reacheth unto heaven and is lifted up even to the skies. The Lord hath brought forth our righteousness. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Make bright the arrows, gather the shields. The Lord hath raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, for his device is against Babylon, to destroy it, because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. Set up the standard upon the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord hath both devised and done that which he spake against the inhabitants of Babylon. 
O thou that dwellest upon many waters, abundant in treasures, thine end is come, and the measure of thy covetousness. Babylon would not be healed, God says. Not that Babylon could not be healed, but Babylon would not be healed. To this end, God calls for his people to forsake her, to every man to go out to his own country because her judgment will reach even unto the heavens. And the focus of this judgment is to bring forth the righteousness of God's people when God's people will declare his works, the works of the Lord, in Zion. And we see a very near fulfillment idea within this particular chunk of scripture as God speaks of the immediate fulfillment of the destruction of Babylon or the overthrow of Babylon, excuse me, through the Medes. God says he will bring vengeance, the vengeance of the Lord and of the Lord's temple against Babylon. And it is interesting if you go to Daniel chapter 5 and you look at when it is that this judgment took place, notice that God speaks not only of his vengeance, but of the vengeance of his temple, right? And in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar has just brought the golden vessels of the temple out from the treasury of Babylon and was using them to drink out of at his party when many, many tekel Eupharsin is written on the wall. And that being kind of the final straw, if it will, that Belshazzar has finally pushed God too far and that he has drunk or, or gloried in God, over God by drinking from the vessels of the temple. And on that night, God judged the nation for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of his temple by overthrowing them under the power of Cyrus the Persian and specifically under the power of Darius the Mede, if you look in Daniel, which is likely why God mentions the Medes here in Jeremiah rather than mentioning the Persians, even though the Medo-Persian Empire was dominated by the Persian side of that confederacy. Now, beginning in verse 14, we roll into what, what we might consider a hymn of praise, a hymn of worship unto God, with Jeremiah declaring the favor of God upon Jacob and the judgment of God upon the nation. So we read, and we'll read through verse 23. The Lord of hosts has sworn by himself, saying, Surely I will fill thee with men as with caterpillars, and they shall lift up a shout against thee. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. Every man is brutish by his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image for his molten image is falsehood and there is no breath. In them. They are vanity, they, the work of errors. In the time of the visitation, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war, for with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. And with thee will I break in pieces the horse and his rider. And with thee will I break in pieces the chariot and his rider. With thee also will I break in pieces the man and woman. And with thee will I break in pieces old and young. And with thee will I break in pieces the young man and the maid. I will also break in pieces with thee the shepherd and his flock. And with thee will I break in pieces the husbandman and his yoke of oxen. 
And with thee will I break in pieces captains and rulers. This hymn begins with the declaration of the Lord swearing by himself that he will fill the nation of Babylon, he says, with men as caterpillars, speaking of a huge invasion, an infestation, if you will. Jeremiah declares the Lord's power in that he hath made the earth, established the world by his wisdom, stretched out the heavens with his understanding. The point here is painting a very strong contrast between the power of Babylon that dominated the world at this time. They were the world power and the power of the Lord who created all things that are. That though this Babylon, being that great head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, though this Babylon, being that, that great nation against which all of the nations of the earth cower, and yet in, the, in light of the God of the universe, Babylon is nothing. Jeremiah expresses the futility of a system that would seek to oppose God as the king of kings. That every man, he says, is brutish when contrasted with the Lord's knowledge. That the wisest man is is, is nothing but a brute against the greatness of our, of our Lord. And once again, beginning in verse 19, we see God separate Jacob from this consideration. In contrast to the Babylonian system, to the philosophy of Babylon, Jacob is not like them, he says. Jacob will be, he says, his battle axe, his weapon of war. With Jacob, he will break the nations in pieces. Destroy kingdoms, the men and women, old and young, shepherds and flocks, husbandmen and oxen. Upon the destruction of the world system represented by Babylon, Jacob will become the root of a new system governed by the Lord himself. And that looks toward that millennial kingdom just after the crumbling of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. We continue in verses 24 through 29. And I will render unto Babylon... And to all the inhabitants of Chaldea, all their evil that they have done in Zion in your sight, saith the Lord. Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroyeth all the earth. And I will stretch out mine hand upon thee and will roll thee down from the rocks and will make thee a burnt mountain. And they shall not take of thee a stone for a corner, nor a stone for foundations, but thou shalt be desolate forever, saith the Lord." Set ye up a standard in the land. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations against her. Call together against her the kingdoms of Ararat, Minni, Askenaz. Appoint a captain against her. Cause the horses to come up as the rough caterpillars. Prepare against her the nations with the king of the Medes, the captains thereof and all the rulers thereof and all the lands of his dominion. And all the land shall tremble in sorrow for every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without an inhabitant. God promises desolation forever upon Babylon against whom God, is work, uh, God uh, says d- is um, destroying all the earth. So God ca- uh, says to call together the multitude of the kings and that they will come together with the king of the Medes against the land, alluding presumably to the overthrow of Babylon in the days of Belshazzar. But as it relates to the utter destruction of Babylon, that's certainly not something that we saw in the days of the Medes. Babylon still stood after the Median overthrow, the overthrow of the Medes and the Persians. Babylon still stood when the Medo-Persian Empire was overthrown by Alexander the Great. Babylon still stood 
when the Grecian Empire was overthrown by the Roman Empire. And so once again, we see an inconsistency between the fullness of God's promises here and what happened in the 500s BC. And we look toward a future time to see this come to its fullness. For our application today, I'd like us to go back to a declaration that the Lord made to Babylon in verses 15 through 18. He said this, He hath made the earth with his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom. He hath stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain and bringeth forth winds out of his treasures. Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image. For his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity, the work of errors. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. Here we find God make an open declaration regarding himself. And over the course of Jeremiah, we have considered this open declaration within any number of contexts. We have considered this open declaration in the context of Psalm 2, when David asks, why do the heathen rage? We've considered it within the context of Job, when the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, where were you, Job, when I made the earth? We have considered this in the context of Isaiah 41 and God's greatness and all of these calls unto humility, all of these calls to recognize who we are in light of who God is, to, as it were, understand our place in light of the God of the universe. Echo what we find here in these verses this evening, calling our attention to the positive of God's wisdom. We considered this morning a message which spoke to modern culture and sensibilities. As we look at the culture around us, a culture that is very much indicative of the philosophy of Babylon as it's presented in Scripture. The rebellious nature going all the way back to the Tower of Babel until its final incarnation in Mystery Babylon. We find a culture which is convinced of its own wisdom, do we not? and its own capacity to control its destiny. As God speaks to Babylon here at the height of her power, under her greatest king, when none can contend against her, it is at this moment that God reminds Babylon that they are not powerful in light of him. And we're reminded that like everything else apart from God, the greatness of man, the wisdom of man, the power of man is little more than an illusion, a lie. And we go to 1 Corinthians to be oriented properly in this, where we learn that true knowledge is knowledge known through the context of God, and outside of this there is not but foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 Reading through verse 24, the Bible says this, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. 
it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is a divine perspective that we find here in these verses. The same perspective that we are presented with in Jeremiah 51 as God declares all men brutish in his sight. The perspective that reminds us that the wisdom of man is brutishness before the Lord. That God who framed the world, who imagined such details in the marvelous system of interactions that we see around us every day and imagined it all by the counsel of his own wisdom, is in wisdom and is in knowledge so high above us, so far beyond us, that there is not even a framework for comparison. And it is this wisdom that gives us the cross of Christ. The cross which, according to the wisdom of the world, is absolute foolishness. But to we who are born again, regenerated by the indwelling Holy Spirit, it is the very power of God. Thus, everything that man thinks he knows about the world cannot avail him with God. The wisdom of the wise is destroyed and brought to nothing, and the wisdom of this world is made foolish by the design and the greatness of the King of kings and of the Lord of lords. All throughout the world, in every age, it is evidence, it is the senses that commend us to authority and to validity. And yet, the Bible tells us that it has pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that would believe. By the simplicity and clarity of words, compelled and convinced by the Holy Spirit of God to save them, not that work, not that earn it, not that purchase it, but to save them that believe. And this system is abject foolishness to the world, which can be broken into two primary worldviews. Paul speaks here of the Jews and the Greeks. The first is the Jew, and that worldview would be a moralizing worldview. Those who seek their own righteousness as the keys to favor with God. Those who look for signs from God in order to believe. Those who regard the spiritual but cannot separate the realities of the spiritual from the necessities of the material. Those who demand effort, who demand systems of merit in order to be satisfied. And to them, this great wisdom of God that is the preaching of the cross, to them, this great wisdom of God that is so contrary to the wisdom of this world, to them, the great wisdom of God that, that stands in, in a strange opposition to the way things seem to function in this world, it's a stumbling block because God's system of grace cannot shoehorn into their system of works, of merit. The second type of worldview that Paul speaks of here is the Gentile worldview, the Greek worldview. This is reason. This is modernism. This is the man who demands that God become rational before he will believe. So that if he cannot wrap his reason and his intellect around a truth claim, if he cannot wrap God's wisdom around his comprehension, then he will not adhere to it. These seek wisdom. They seek rationality. These seek a system which conforms to what they understand 
of their perception, of the reality of the world as they perceive it with their eyes, as they feel it with their hands. And to them, the great wisdom of God is foolishness because God's system of grace does not fit into their system of rationality. And each of these people groups ends up, regardless of how religious or irreligious they are, rooted in this system called Babylon, rooted in this philosophy that ends up invariably with the ideas of Babylon, of rebellion, of self-importance, of self-righteousness. The wisdom of this world, the exaltation of man above God, hearkening all the way back to the works at Babel. And those words which were stated, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. But Paul says, to them which are called, to those who have responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and humbled themselves before the message of the gospel, this foolish message whereby a man must die for the sins of others, this foolish message which tells me that I cannot earn my way to God, that I cannot bring about in myself the merit by which to please God, stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. But to we who are called, to we who have responded, the finished work of Jesus Christ offered without merit, rooted in that which is not seen, is the perfection both of God's power and of God's wisdom. So that Paul goes on to say in verses 25 through 29 of 1 Corinthians 1, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. The essence of the spirit of Babylon, the spirit that was active in that day in the actual nation of Babylon under the king Nebuchadnezzar, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel uh, and Nimrod who began his kingdom there at Babel, going all the way forward to Mystery Babylon. The essence of this spirit is one that exalts mankind's wisdom, mankind's achievements, mankind's capacities, mankind's superiority. And that no flesh should glory in God's presence, the Bible tells us God has chosen the foolish things of the world to be the things through which his wisdom can be maximally seen. And even so much so that he uses the foolishness of preachers and the preaching of the preachers to work power in the hearts of them that believe. Because even the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Even the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Paul tells us that it is for this reason that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty men after the flesh, and not many noble men after the flesh enter into the kingdom of God. Because God's wisdom is not man's wisdom. God's strength is not man's strength. God's nobility is not man's nobility. And it's not just that God is more noble, more, uh, is stronger, is wiser, but that when the wise man looks at the wisdom of God, he says, that's not the wisdom I know. When the strong man sees the strength of God, he says, that's not the kind of strength I know. 
when the nobleman sees the, noble, the, the nobility of God, he says, that's not the kind of nobility I've been striving for. Self-acclaim. Self-righteousness. Not only are they not the same, but they stand in direct contrast one to another so that any man who is sold out to the one system finds the other to be foolishness. So the Bible says God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And that brings every man to a natural point of decision. If on the one side you have Babylon, and Babylon is representative of man's wisdom, man's strength, man's honor, man's nobility, man's way, man's, man's system, man's solutions, and on the other side you have God's, God's way, God's wisdom, God's solutions, God's nobility. And if the wisdom of God is foolishness to man, and if, if it is for this reason that those who are committed to Babylon do not find the kingdom of God, because these philosophies stand in direct contrast one to another, then the question is simply this, who is on the Lord's side? Under whose authority is your future? Under whose authority is your eternity? Under whose authority is your decision-making process? Under whose authority is your perception of reality? Is your perception of wisdom rooted in Babylon or is it rooted in God? Is your perception of strength Man's perception of strength or God's? Is your perception of wisdom man's perception of wisdom or God's? Is your perception of nobility man's perception of nobility or God's? Do you rest under your own authority, intent on doing things your own way, intent on getting to God your way, intent on pleasing God the way that makes sense to you, or are you submitted to the wisdom of God? as it relates to the gospel, that you cannot earn your way to heaven, that you cannot be good enough to get yourself to heaven, that you can't buy your way to heaven, that you can't bring about within yourself personal merit to get you there. And then, of course, as it relates to the Christian life. Every day we are confronted with a new decision. Who is on the Lord's side? Is God's way really the best way? Is humility really better than pride? See, because pride feels pretty good. Is humility really the path I ought to take? Well, are you on the Lord's side? Do you believe that God's wisdom is greater than world's wisdom? Is truth really better than lies? Lies can get me some places. Lies can avoid some troubles. Well, yeah, but who's on the Lord's side? Are you on the Lord's side? Are you doing things the Lord's way? Do you believe that if you do it the Lord's way, that that's where true wisdom lies? Is purity better than impurity? The pleasures of sin for a season. Well, there are pleasures in sin for a season. But that's at the expense of eternity. So whose side are you on? Are you on the Lord's side? Or have you followed the pragmatism of the world into their philosophy. Is separation really better than conformity? 
Is obedience really better than rebellion? Well, who is on the Lord's side? See, the world around us sees the wisdom of God, sees the methods of God, and says that's foolishness. Says it's weakness. Says it's counterproductive. And yet the Lord says it's the power of God. And it's the wisdom of God. In the eyes of the world, these questions are not clear-cut and are often met with scoffs and scorn and disdain. But through the eyes of faith, these questions have definitive answers. The psalmist spoke to them in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. More to be desired than gold are the words of the Lord, are his statutes, are his commandments, are those reproofs of instruction which the scriptures tell us are the way of life. And in keeping them, there is great reward. That's the wisdom of God. That's the power of God. Are you on the Lord's side with that this evening? Do you believe that? Do you believe it enough to let it affect the manner in which you live your life, to affect the manner in which you think about the things in your life? Do you believe it enough to set aside those things, those weights which are, are, are besetting you, those things that you're dragging along through your life and you won't let go of them because it would offend your pride and you won't let go of them because it would bruise your ego and you won't let go of them because it would cause you to have to humble yourself before someone. And so you're just going to keep dragging them along. Or do you believe that in keeping of the Lord's wisdom, there is great reward? How are you doing this evening? Have you found yourself caught up in the wisdom of this world, in its system, in its rationale, and its promises? Have you remembered this evening that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God, that in the eyes of God, the greatest civilization that mankind has ever brought to bear is brutish in his sight? Are you on the Lord's side this evening? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.